right. Well, if you don't know me, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I haven't been here to worship with you guys on a Sunday in quite a while, a couple of months. Um, and I can just honestly tell you that it is hard not to be here. It's hard not to be in person. Um, I feel like the longing to worship together in person just grows more and more intense as you uh, are at home. And, uh, you know, having the live streaming and Zoom meetings and things like that is amazing. It's a great gift from God. But there's nothing quite like being able to be in the same room singing with brothers and sisters. So I'm excited to be here. That's not to say anything bad to the people who are watching from home. I'm excited that we have the option to be able to do that. That's a, just an amazing gift from God. So welcome to everybody, whether you're here in person or whether you're online. Um, I'm excited about this. I'm excited to be able to um, just preach through this passage today. Uh, I have some good news. I was gifted some new shoes, and so I've been wearing them for about four hours, and my feet hurt. So there's no possible way I can preach as long as Sam. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> All right, so Acts chapter 8. I'm going to give us just a quick recap so we can get up to speed together, and then we will jump into our passage. So we're in the midst of what is really the first scattering of the Christian church away from Jerusalem. Saul, on behalf of the Jewish leaders, has been bringing heavy persecution down on the church, and uh, we, we just got to see Stephen stoned and killed by an angry mob, and now we see the text just last week talks about Saul is going around and ravaging the church. Now this caused the church to scatter throughout Judea and Samaria, out of Jerusalem. And what's important for our purposes this afternoon is that these church members weren't running and hiding. They were leaving Jerusalem in boldness and in Holy Spirit power, going out and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't know if you guys remember all the way back in Acts 1, Sam reminded us of this last week as well, but one of the last promises that Jesus made to his disciples was that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon them and that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So we are seeing the fulfillment of that here. The Holy Spirit has come upon the disciples in power. They were actively witnessing the gospel message in Jerusalem, and many were coming to know Christ. And now God, using the persecution of his church to accomplish his works, has scattered his people throughout Judea and Samaria. God's sovereignty was fully in control of this persecution and scattering of his people. We could spend a lot of time talking about how God can and does use persecution to enact his will and build his kingdom. If you want to hear more about that, I would encourage you to listen to Sam's message last week because it was really, really good. Um, but for our purposes, we see this guy, Philip. He's one of the church members of the church in Jerusalem, and he was actually one of the seven men who were chosen to serve the church in Jerusalem as a deacon alongside Stephen, who was recently killed. We see Philip go to the city of Samaria to preach the word of God with power. 
We see the Holy Spirit works through casting out demons, healing the sick, and many in the city are saved. So that's where our story picks up. Let me give you a bit of a roadmap. We're going to read the passage, we're going to pray, and then I'm going to give a little bit more context about kind of what's going on, and then we're going to talk about the conflict that's highlighted in this passage between a couple of characters. And then we're going to wrap up by looking at some of Jesus' words from Matthew as we, I think, look at what the Holy Spirit wants us as believers to apply to our lives from this passage. So let's go ahead and jump into it. Acts chapter 8. We're going to be starting in verse 9. The text says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord, that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. That is the word of God for us. Let me go ahead and pray. God, we thank you that you have given us your word. We thank you that we can sit in it, that we can study it, that we can um, pray over it, and that you will impart understanding to us. God, I pray that today you would fill me with the Spirit and you would preach your words to your people. God, I pray that each one of us would have an encounter with you that you would show us your face through this passage, that we would experience your love. Thank you. Amen. All right, so like I said, I want to just give a little bit more context about this uh, region, just where this passage is set. 
which is Samaria. So Sam kind of walked us through this last week, but if you weren't here, Samaria was born out of the northern kingdom of Israel after they were conquered. When the Jews from the northern kingdom returned, they mixed with other cultures and people groups a lot more heavily than the Jews from the southern kingdom that made up Judea did. Hostility between the Jews in Judea and the Samaritans grew very intense, neither one liking the other. With Galilee in the north and Judea in the south, Samaria was kind of stuck between them. Now the Jews disliked the Samaritans so much that when traveling between Galilee and Judea, they would often take the long way around to make sure that they didn't have to pass through Samaria. This was the hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. We saw in Jesus' ministry that he didn't follow these practices. Jesus' actions and words to the Samaritans was shocking to the Jews of his time. When Jesus traveled between Galilee and Judea, he didn't travel the long way around. He went right through Samaria. Jesus interacted with the Samaritan woman at the well. He preached to the Samaritans just as he did to the Jews. His depiction of the good Samaritan as the Jews' neighbor, who they should love, was shocking to his audience. Now, the Samaritans still worshipped Yahweh, but because they did not have access to the temple in Jerusalem, they worshipped God at a mountain called Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans believed that the Messiah would come to their mountain and that he would reveal himself there. The Samaritan religion was kind of a mixed bag of Jewish Old Testament practices and idolatrous religious practices that they had inherited from the cultures around them, with a a heavy emphasis on power and magic as being divine messages from God. So into this setting, we see Philip travel full of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches the truth of the gospel. And in our passage, we see this conflict immediately rise between Philip and Simon the magician. I'm just going to say this up front. This might be a little bit difficult for us to swallow, but the Bible here presents Simon as a magician, simply as fact, with no explanation. This was a man who had magical power and used it to amaze the people. Not only was he using his power to amaze them, but he was claiming that the source of his power was divine, that he was the mouthpiece of God to them because of the works of magic that he was performing. I think for us in our culture, it can be easy to get distracted trying to rationalize away the magic part of this. And I would encourage you to set aside that distraction. Let's engage this as the text presents it. And if you want to talk about magic and whether it's real or not, or study scripture and look at how scripture depicts magic, maybe we can do that at another time. But for today, I want us to just focus in and set that aside and not let our rationalizing get in the way of what God has for us. So Philip enters into this city. He enters into a context where Simon holds a lot of authority. Simon has been there for quite some time, amazing the people with his magic, to the point that all of the people acknowledge Simon as the power of God that is called great. He was their prophet. Now Philip shows up, and he starts preaching the truth of the gospel message, with great signs and wonders being done by the Holy Spirit, and people believe the truth of the gospel, and they get saved. 
We see that even Simon himself believes and gets baptized because he's amazed at the great signs and wonders that the Holy Spirit is doing. Think about that. This is a man who could literally work magic. He had amazed an entire city with his magic for a long time, the passage says. He has ultimate power and authority in this city because he is God's mouthpiece. And he is amazed at the works of the Holy Spirit. In just a minute, we're going to have to talk about whether Simon's belief is true or not and whether his belief was enough for salvation. But I just want us to sit in the power of God for a minute here. I think we all cognitively know that the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel are powerful. But we simply don't live in a country or a time where we're able to see some of the more supernatural aspects of those at work in our day-to-day lives. We maybe have heard stories of people in other places where the gospel has come up against magic or demonic possession or something like that. But for most of us, those stories are far off and they don't really reflect the nature of our lives. But I think it's important for us to understand something. The truth of the gospel message and the power of the Holy Spirit to effectively save people with that truth is universal in nature. The Holy Spirit and saving nature of the gospel isn't more or less effective when it's presented against the power of a magician than it is when presented against the doubting mind of an atheist or the despair and hopelessness of a person affected by by mental illness or a person trapped in the power of a crippling sexual addiction or even a person damaged by abuse within a ministry or a church context. The power of the Holy Spirit to affect salvation through the truth of the gospel message is just as incredible and amazing in our time and place as it was in the hands and mouth of Philip preaching to the Samaritans. Romans chapter 1 verse verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is everyone whether they are enthralled by the power of a magician or the power of an ideological agenda or the power of a mental illness or the power of an addiction or the power of anything. There are so many things in in life that have power. But the truth is that the power of the gospel is more powerful than any of those things. Sam says it all the time. He tells this, it uses this analogy of Jesus is the stronger, strong man. It doesn't matter what the thing is that has enthralled and trapped people in its power. The truth of the gospel, Jesus is more powerful. The Holy Spirit inside of believers is more powerful. Jesus the Messiah, the creator and king of the universe, is more powerful. I want us to just make sure we don't miss that. That truth is important. It's not even the main point of the text, but I think it's important for us just to acknowledge that. Okay, so we get Philip going into the city. He preaches the gospel. Many people are saved. We see Simon the magician believes. And then we see that the apostles who have heard the the work that God is doing to save the Samaritans send Peter and John down to visit. I think there's a little bit of... um, maybe disbelief in this uh, as the apostles kind of have to come and see it to believe it. These are the Samaritans, their uh, hated enemies. 
And while Jesus may have told them that he was going to send the gospel to the Samaritans, they haven't done it yet. I think they might be kind of just, you know, needing to show up and see it a little bit. So they, they come, Peter and John show up, they assess the situation, and they see that people still need to receive the Holy Spirit. So they lay hands on them and they do so. Now I'm just going to mention this because there is some controversy around it. Some people take this passage as a support to mean that there are two different types of baptism. There's water baptism and spirit baptism because we see both of those depicted in this passage. We're not going to spend a bunch of time talking about it. Just to point out that we shouldn't take story passages, narrative passages, and try to make doctrine out of them unless it's supported by the weight of Scripture. And I think in this case, what we see is is just different than that. It's not giving us a universal uh, example, but it's actually, I think, a, an example of the love that God has for the Samaritans and for anyone who is kind of other, who is outside of uh, culture, who is hated by others. We, we saw, we talked about how the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. The, long, the Samaritans had long been counted as those outsiders, as the others. Jesus actively worked against this mentality. And I think that this is put here in order for God to again work against that mentality. He wanted there to be no doubt that he was establishing the Samaritans as full members of his kingdom and church. Throughout history, God has always made sure to take special care for the other, the shunned, the hated, the poor, the orphan, the widow. This is just another example of that. God moves in great power and care to establish that those that the Jews hated are full brothers and sisters in the kingdom. I think that that can play into our lives and how we view other people. I think maybe we should take that and think about how we view the outcasts or the others of our society. Because I can guarantee you that just like God loved and wanted the Samaritans in his church, he loves and wants those people in his church as well. So we see Simon the Magician featuring in this story once again. So we saw that he believed from Philip's preaching, he was baptized, and then he starts following Philip around in awe of the signs and wonders of the Holy Spirit. Now when Peter comes to town and brings the Holy Spirit to the Samaritan believers through the laying on of hands, Simon wants this power for himself. He asks Peter if he can pay for the ability to bestow the Holy Spirit on people. Peter, as you can imagine, does not respond positively to this. He curses Simon's money along with him and says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity." There's a lot of discussion about Simon and his salvation. Was he really saved? Was his belief genuine? I think that Peter's words here seem to indicate that Simon's belief in Philip's message was probably not genuine saving faith. Scripture seems to present that more than just acceptance of facts and awe of power is needed for saving faith. And this seems to be the extent of Simon's belief. 
He has no trouble believing that there are supernatural powers at work in the world. He himself works in that way. I think he sees the nature of Philip's message and the power of the Holy Spirit, and he wants it for himself. We see Peter harshly rebuke Simon for this. He says, Simon's heart is not right before God. His motives are wrong. And Peter uses these two phrases, the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Peter is using scripture here to reveal Simon's heart to us. Simon's thirst for power and glory have led him into bitterness and iniquity, and his heart is stuck in it. Proverbs chapter 5, verse 22 refers to the bonds of iniquity that Simon is stuck in. It says, The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. Peter is saying that Simon is ensnared by his own sin. The gall of bitterness that Peter refers to is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 29, verses 18 and 19, which say, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Peter recognizes here that Simon is trapped in his own sin. He's stuck in the stubbornness of his own heart. And he rebukes him for it. The beauty of this rebuke, though, is that Peter doesn't just rebuke Simon. He calls Simon to repentance. He once again gives Simon the truth and invites him to give himself over to the power of the gospel. We're going to start to wrap things up a little bit here. Um, But I just want us to look at Simon and his actions and try to formulate for ourselves what we need to get out of this. Like I said, Simon's basic problem is sin, just like all of us. Simon's particular sin seems to be his lust for power and glory for himself. This has led Simon down a path of using magic to pretend to be God's messenger. We would call that a false prophet. He's set himself up as a messenger speaking God's words to men. But his words are not the words of God. They are not the truth of the gospel. I think it's important for us to understand the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet here. And we see it in our story. We see the difference between Simon and Philip. So I'm going to give us three things real quick that I think showcase the difference between a false prophet and a true prophet as we compare the difference between Simon and Philip. So number one, Simon uses power in order to awe people, in order to gain recognition for himself. On the other hand, Philip is used by the Holy Spirit, a far greater power to direct people to Christ, not to himself. I think this is the most basic aspect of a false prophet. Their words direct people towards man, while a true prophet's words direct others towards Christ. Number two, we see Simon is enamored by power himself as well. He's willing to do whatever it takes to gain more power, including claiming belief in Jesus. But in the end, he's still just trying to gain more power for himself. Philip, on the other hand, humbly preaches the word. He has incredible power 
going through him, being used by the Holy Spirit to bring salvation. But then he steps aside for the apostles to come in and take over. I think we see here that a false prophet seeks more and more power, while a true prophet doesn't focus on power for its own sake. Instead, his humble aim is to drive people to Christ. Number three, I think we see the results of the two powers at play here speaks volumes. The people have been amazed by Simon's power. But again, he's using his power to command glory for himself. Simon's power results in fear, in bitterness, in selfishness, and in greed. In fact, I think we're pretty safe to say that throughout history, we've seen that any power structure set up by man will eventually show the same results. But we can see clearly the results of Philip's gospel proclamation in verse 8, just before our passage. It says, So there was much joy in that city. The result of true gospel proclamation is joy. It's not fear, it's not selfishness, it's not bitterness, it's joy. I wanted to end just by talking about Simon's obsession with the gifts and power of God rather than a love for Jesus himself. If you would, turn in Scripture to Matthew 13. Simon is amazed by the power of the gospel and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So he believed in the truth of them, and he tries to buy these powers for himself. In Matthew 13, we see a parable of Jesus. And we're going to look real quick just at at this parable and at Jesus' explanation of this. You're probably familiar with this. This is the parable of the sower. It says, That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. And great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched. And since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus tells this parable of the seed being sown onto different types of ground. Like I said, you're probably familiar or have heard this, and I'm sure that you've heard a pastor somewhere explain what the different types of soil represent, and I don't want to necessarily retrace all of them. But let's just jump down to verse 18, to Jesus' explanation of this parable. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. 
He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. Jesus explains this parable, and I think it's pretty uh, pretty easy to place Simon in the category here of the ground where the thorns are. That the gospel seed is sown into his ground, but he hears the word and the cares and riches of the world choke out the truth for him. Simon misses the central truth of the gospel message. He falls in love with the power of God instead of the person of Jesus. I really want us to sit in this. I think we need to evaluate our own souls and our own stories to see if we are in love with the power or the gifts of God rather than the person of Jesus. Some of you know my story, but for those who don't, I grew up in church knowing about God and learning the truths of the gospel. But as I learned, as I uh, experienced Jesus, I had this dissonance, this disconnect in my own heart. And I had this moment where I realized I had to make a decision. Was I going to completely wrap my life around the person of Jesus Christ and let him lead my my way to shape my life? Or was I going to keep seeking out my own will and just treat Jesus as the nice part of my life for when I wanted religion? Jesus doesn't want us to want his stuff. He doesn't want us to just want a a good life. He doesn't want us to just want a way into heaven. He wants us to want him. He wants our love and affection, wholly and completely. Do we love Jesus or do we love the Christian life? Do we love Jesus or do we love community? Do we love Jesus or do we love feeling like a good person? I think these are questions that are important for us to ask ourselves. If our answer is anything other than that we love Jesus for who he is, we aren't experiencing the fullness of what he wants. I'd like for us to just spend a little bit of time and be honest with ourselves. Evaluate ourselves. See if maybe our attention has fallen off of Jesus. Maybe we have been attracted more to the perks of Jesus than to his person. If that's the case, I would encourage us all to reflect on Peter's words to Simon. He says, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Simon was a false prophet, a man who had convinced people that he was the power of God. And then when he's confronted by the truth of the gospel, he sought to buy the power of God for himself. Yet, Peter, when confronting this man, encourages him to repent. We see Simon's response that he asks Peter to pray for him. I think that we should spend some time, be honest enough with ourselves to see if maybe we need to repent, to see if maybe we need somebody to pray for us that these things would not happen to us. Jesus wanted Simon, a false prophet. Jesus wants us as well.
So I'm going to pray for us. The band's going to come up. They're going to just play a little bit. I just want us to spend some time and evaluate. See where we're at. Hopefully, we will find that we love Jesus. But if we don't, let's just spend a little time repenting. Jesus, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds, give us a clarity to be able to evaluate our own wants and desires, to be able to evaluate and look at how we spend our time, where our attention is, what we get excited about, what we talk about with our friends. Jesus, I pray that you would let us truly evaluate ourselves and then whatever we come up with, we would want you. Jesus, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts to how much you love us and that we would receive. Church, spend a couple minutes just in reflection on this.